one of the keys to, uh, to learning, one of the things that, two of the things, I guess, that get our minds moving uh, is uh, tragedy or repetition. So we're going for repetition rather than tragedy, scarring someone mentally. So if I can get my slides, that would be helpful. Great. Not there, though. Don't look. You're skinny. You know, you guys are like jumping ahead. Okay. This is what you saw. Very good. Very good. All right, good. So this has been kind of the theme verse for this series. We've been talking about, as Christians, thinking through what is it, uh, and, and even if you're not a Christian here today, of course, you're still welcome to be thinking with us about this. What are the things that God loves and what are the things that God hates and how can we steer our lives toward the things that God loves? And so this has been a verse, and hopefully, maybe even as we've just been going over it, it becomes sort of a part of your memory that Ecclesiastes this is a book of wisdom. And, and as the book of wisdom wraps up, uh, Solomon says, I've said everything that I need to say, and you've heard everything I've got to say, so here it is. Love God, or fear God, love God also. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring into judgment every deed with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is a true statement that should uh, shock us and bring us to our knees, especially in terms of the songs that we just sang. One of the things that's interesting about singing songs that have the word I surrender all in it is that everyone around you who saw you singing it now gets to hold you accountable to it. Going to church is a dangerous thing. Participating in worship is a dangerous thing. The songs that you sang, the words that you said, the prayers that you prayed, if you prayed along, had meaning. They had meaning. And God holds us to the meaning. Every word we say, every deed we do, every thought we think comes into judgment. And that is a good thing, and it is a scary thing, and it is an amazing thing to come to the table and say, Jesus forgives. Amen? Good. So, as we think specifically today, focusing in, narrowing in on the question of what is it that God hates, especially we've been looking at this text from Proverbs 6. It's really a nice text. kind of just gives us these little points here. Here's six things that God hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. And the first thing is pride. God despises pride. He honors the humble man or woman. God hates falsehood, a lying tongue. If we take up lies into our mouth, whether you're lying to your parents or you're lying to your spouse or you're lying to yourself or you're lying to God, if that's possible, trying to lie to God, God hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed an innocent blood. And today we're going to take these two together here, a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run to evil. I think these two things flow nicely together. And I think you should notice, notice all of the body language, eyes and tongue and hands and heart here. And the word heart here has to do with not necessarily just emotions as we think of it, uh, but also will. The deepest part of yourself that makes decisions, that, that decision-making process, we might sometimes think of the mind today in our, the way that we kind of conceive of the human body and then feet that run. You see all this embodied life, that sin is a internal and external. It's, it's, it's all of this wrapped together. And I want to say two really boring things. So, you know, just muscle through with me. These are really boring, really obvious things. Are you ready? Okay. Thank you. Someone's awake. 
The first obvious thing is this. God hates it when you sit there and plan to do evil things. When you plan, how can I cheat, or how can I steal, or how can I lie, or, or how can I get away with this, or how can I get revenge on this? I don't have time to go through all of the different things you might think, right? But you get the point, right? Okay. God, likewise, here's second, that was the first obvious thing. Here's second obvious thing. God likewise despises it. He hates it. When we swiftly jump up, there's a kind of excitement that goes with sin, Quiet, got quiet there for a second. There's a kind of excitement. You get a little bit in your stomach, and you're like, oh man, this is going to be good. If there wasn't a kind of excitement, we wouldn't participate. We wouldn't do it. But we get, we get off on it. We, we love it. It's something that, that brings us to that endorphin rush or that adrenaline burst or whatever it is. It, it gets us. So it's not just like we want to go and, you know, well, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll lie, cheat, steal, and destroy, sell heroin, whatever it is. It got extreme quickly. Uh, I got lost there for a second. It's not, it's not just that we, we think, well, you know, but we, we rush to it. We, we excitedly pursue it, and God despises that. He hates it. He hates the planning, and he hates the activity. That's the second obvious thing. And what makes this tough this morning is that, I, like, I don't even know that you have to be a very good, you probably don't even have to be a Christian to, to, to agree with this. This is a pretty obvious statement. So what more is there is there to say about one of the things that I worry most about is, um, is boring people. Don't give any testimony about whether or not you feel that way. But the, I, I get really worried about that. But I was thinking about this text. And like, cause I was reading this, I was like, wow, there's, that's, that's really clear. Like, there's, I don't, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. It's not. I was thinking how interesting it is. Think about your life over the week. And when in your week... When in your week do you come to a place with a bunch of other people to have someone say, don't do these things? You don't get it in TV, you don't get it in the news. School is an interesting statement right there. This is a soapbox that I'm going to stand on since you brought it up. I was at my daughter's school and she is joining a, uh, she's a part of this STEAM club. It's like a mathematics and engineering and that kind of thing, which is, which is fine and good and wonderful. And she's a, she's a part of this club and, and they're laying out the, like, this is what we're going to do. So all the parents are standing around. This is what we're going to do. This is the kind of activities we're going to have. Isn't that exciting? Now, first let's lay some ground rules. You should be nice to one another. You need to do your best. And it drove me nuts because as a lover of the humanities, they have no right to tell my daughter to do any of that. Because there is no framework whatsoever. A school is trying to teach my daughter, you need to be nice. But my daughter is going to ask that important question, exactly. And the school cannot tell her a thing. Which is why, parents and children, this moment is so important. Why it is so important that we gather together. Why it is important that the statistics that tell us that Christians go to church 1.5 times a month is not good enough. Because if there's only one time a month you're hearing from someone, stop doing evil things, follow God and do better things, you will not progress. Because you are inundated every day. We were at a a WMU volleyball game last night, and there were these moments they would play, and they'd be playing, and then somebody would score. I don't know what they call any of these things. So if you like volleyball, just forgive me. Somebody would score, and, and then they would immediately, there's like a 10-second window between, between that and another thing. You know what they did? They played music for 10 seconds of some song. 
And then it's like we can't have a moment of silence for them to like reset. You are getting messages all the time. And this is why uh, you need to be the agents of knowledge and laying the framework for why we need to be moral in your homes and why you need to be to church more often. Those are two soapboxes. I'm done with them. Okay. I anticipate that all of us in some way, and as I was thinking through this text of the week and letting it speak to me um, and praying over it, I was thinking of that every one of us in some way wrestle with this. I don't know whether you have a bad habit that you're into or if you have a bad thought that you've been sort of thinking and wrestling and and working through. These These are the processes, though, all of us are engaged in because no one falls into sin. There's no such thing as falling into sin. No one falls into it. What happens is we allow one thought into our mind. And one thought becomes two thoughts, becomes three thoughts. It's like cell division. It grows. In fact, this is why James is so helpful. Because what happens is that one thought gets into your mind and begins to worm its way around and you give it a little leeway. You let it stay for a little while and it grows and it grows and it grows until it gives birth, James says. Until you give birth to this actual action. So it's not just in the body, in the mind anymore, but now it's outside. You're, you're practicing it. And when that little sin that you've now given birth to becomes a full-grown adult, it, bre- it brings forth Death. Death of your family, death of your relationships, death of your job, death of whatever the death is there. It is going to bring it forward. And what it will obviously bring us forward to is in the judgment, we will be judged according to these things. And we will not pass through the judgment. So, when we get into this place where we have allowed the the mind to go, we've allowed the, the thought to grow and it happens in our life we we begin to move on autopilot so that this second thing just kind of happens naturally our our feet run to do evil they don't stop because our conscience has already been seared because we spent so much time devising the plan in our minds devising the thoughts thinking about well maybe i'll do this i shouldn't do this well maybe i should and as it grows then we just move on autopilot have you ever said i can't believe i just did that anybody ever said that you do something, I can't, believe I, just, I can't believe I just said that. I know, has anybody ever said that to you? I can't believe I just said that. How did that happen? Well, it happened because you've been thinking it for months, if not years. You've allowed it to happen in your mind. You've allowed it to happen in your will. You've cultivated that kind of pattern of thinking, and then it happens automatically. That is your response, your gut reaction, as it were. Jesus talks about this because the the ancient people that Jesus is dealing with, they were worried that outside forces would defile them. They're worried that if if I touch this thing or go to this place or talk to this person, I will become unclean in God's eyes. And Jesus says, that's nonsense. That's not how it works at all. He says in Mark 7, there's nothing outside a person that that by going into them can defile them, specifically if they're thinking about food laws. But things that are come out of a person are those things that defile us. And I still think we think this way. If you ask a person if they're good, what will they tell you? Yes, right? What he says, no, I'm a terrible person, right? No, I'm a good person. And what do they mean by that? They mean I don't regularly do things I think are wrong to other people. That's what they mean by good. That's not God's level of judgment for goodness. God's level of judgment, because we never bring into what are my thought, what is my thought life like? God brings your thought life into judgment as much as he brings your actions into judgment. And so we need to begin, well, nope, 
We need to begin with the will. What is my will? What is my mind focused on so that my feet will not ever allow me to be brought into, into wickedness? Jesus says this. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. From within, out of the heart of a person, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Now I won't ask you to point yourself out, but maybe these are a lot of things God hates. And I can find myself in there. Things I wrestle with, things that I allow to creep into my mind that I give a little bit of, little bit of space to. Things I don't shut down quickly enough. That, that's what, it, it, it's these things that kind of begin within. These are the things that defile a person. I had a friend, uh, a new friend, had a conversation with this uh, last week, or maybe it was the week before, but he's talking about how he thought of the church like a gym. If you ever go into a gym, which many of you are going to be doing, right, for this run club thing, uh, if you go into a gym, everybody's using a different machine because they're working on a different muscle group or they're working on a different activity or they want to reach, achieve a different kind of goal and yet all of it is directed towards better physical health that's the that's the idea we are all here today this morning and you're hearing verses and my thoughts and what your task is as a hearer of the word is to take that and say where where am i where am i and how can how can i take these words that jesus speaks and attack the place where I am weak. How can I attack the place where I am weak? Because God hates our minds going to waste. He hates it to King James it up for you. Bill, wherever you are. There he is, way in the back. Did a very good job last week. Uh, vain imaginations. God despises vain imaginations, which is what he's getting at when he says it's not that you committed adultery, it's that you looked with lust. It's not that you committed murder, it's that you allowed anger a place in your, your heart because God wants whole worshipers, people who are given totally to him. There's a great little quote that I read recently. Some of my guys will recognize this from uh, a book that we're reading together. Kent Hughes says this. Uh, the great scandal of today's church is Christians without Christian minds. Christians without Christian minds. And what he means by this is that we know the trappings of religion. So here I'm speaking directly to those of you who are kind of the, your, your, your members here, your, your churchgoers. We know the trappings of religiosity. We know that we ought to be baptized. We know we ought to pray. We know how to step, how to step in the right steps. We know how to do the right things. But are our minds so shaped by presence with Christ, so shaped by the power of the Spirit, so shaped by Scripture, so shaped by song, so shaped by the things that are of God, that our reactions are Christ-like. Notice that. Reactions are Christ-like. I want you to turn in your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. Um, it's too long. I can't put it up on the screen. And so uh, I'm going to have to do old-fashioned, which is good. Page 953, if you're, uh, you can use the Pew Bible like I am, page 953. And we're actually engaging the last little bit of an argument, so I'd encourage you to go home and, and read, read earlier. Go home and read all of chapter 2. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're looking at specifically verses 13 through 16. Again, page 953 if you're using the Pew Bible, 1 Corinthians. Paul is speaking, and... Uh, and he says, 
He says this. He says, we impart this, and that's sort of the teachings, these things that he's sharing, in words not taught by human wisdom, but by, are, that are taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There are things about God and living a godly life that are only for those who are attuned spiritually. Because, he says in the next verse, 14, the natural person does not accept the things that are of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you're not a Christian here today, this should make a lot of sense to you. You might have come here this morning, somebody dragged you here, maybe the parent, or you you just found your way here this morning, and you would say, these people are very strange. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what these verses mean. What are these songs? I mean, if you ever stop and and think about, what's what's the song? Oh, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You know that song? That's a great song. If you aren't a Christian, that is the weirdest thing you have ever heard, right? These people are bananas. That is what you would think. But for those of us who are Christians, like, oh, we get that. We understand it completely like that. Oh, yeah, this is, this is good, good stuff, right? And so the natural person, when you talk about uh, holding back your, your desires, you say, well, I, 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 I know I shouldn't eat three donuts, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want, I don't know why I use that because God is all for donuts, but... Um, the, that's, that's what I naturally want to do. That's kind of where I'm inclined it toward. And so I, why don't I just do it? And the Christian says, well, we, you know, we want to control the body. We want to not be gluttons. We want to be people who, who kind of keep that, keep that close because we care about exactly the body and all these other things. And so the natural person resists the spirit of God. And so we would say, well, that's strange. That's weird. But the spiritual person, the person who's in tune with God, are the people who are saying, no, I want to get closer and closer and closer to the things that God loves. The immature Christian, the Christian who is kind of just trying to ride the fence, well, I, can, I know I can dabble a little bit over here and it'll be okay and God will, God will still forgive me. Or, you know, this isn't exactly sin and so it's all right. But the mature Christian is moving closer and closer and closer to the things that God loves because they want to be where God is. So however I can get there, That's what I am pursuing because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person doesn't understand them. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And here this is a quote from Scripture. But, and here I want you to underline, even if you've got the Pew Bible, do it. So the next person says, but we have the mind of Christ. That's an incredible statement. That those of you here who are believers in Christ, who are baptized in his spirit, who are walking according to his word, you are able to think and act and move and live in the world as Jesus is. You have the mind of Christ. Or maybe more um, succinctly put, we can think like Jesus. We can think like Jesus. And this is... um, this is naturally understood as well. Have you ever had somebody say, wow, that's, or said to yourself, I've done this a few times, I'm like, wow, I'll say something, or I'll do, especially when it comes to the kids, I'll do something, I'm like, wow, that was like my dad. Like, that was just like, just exactly like him. Uh, and that's because as you spend time with somebody, you grow similar to them. You begin to take on their traits and characteristics. As you walk with God, you will become more like Christ. That's the goal. That's the Christian maturity. But so many of us are not doing that because we are not willing to put in the work that it takes to pursue 
things like God. So I want to push you, because as I said, it was obvious to say God hates evil thoughts, God hates evil actions. You're like, okay, good, thank you, let's go home. I want to push you a little further than that. Because the task of my life as I was thinking about this is that I want my impulses to be Christ-like. So when we're in moments of stress or we're in moments of trouble or we're in moments of, uh, of trial or, or as, uh, as Steve was saying, sorrow, we react. And we look back on what our reactions and we say, well, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that or I need to apologize for that. What I want out of Jordan is a Jordan who reacts like Jesus. So I don't have to sit and ask the question, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? But because I'm so in tune with God, I am able to now just do what Jesus would do. Just as a natural, it's just part of who I am. That's how I would respond to these things. I was listening to the news, uh, and they were talking about uh, the, Nobel Peace Pro- or the Nobel Prize winner for economics. Did anybody hear anything about this? Nobel Prize, right? It's like a super boring story. I know, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, this guy, anyway, this, is, this, was, this was interesting to me uh, because he won, the, he won the Nobel Prize in economics because he brought psychology and economics together because the prevailing wisdom before him was that we are all logical buyers. You go to this, already you're laughing. That is not true. I see the candy, I want the candy, I buy the candy, right? Passing, just passing the, like if we were logical buyers for a car, for instance, what would you do? You would say, well, give me the, the give me the stat sheet. Like what's the, you know, what's the, um, what's the safety rating? What's the miles per gallon? What's the, what's the cost going to be? The monthly cost? Like, we're going to ask all those questions, but we don't, do we? No, because our deepest concern is what will make me most look and feel like Matthew McConaughey in a Lincoln. Because, right? Can I get a witness? There it is. That is, that's it. Because, I don't know if you can see this very well, but that is cool. Hey, I'll get the ushers down here and they will take you. He is, he is great. I mean, like, but isn't it, this is a car commercial. What has this told me about the car? Not a thing. Other than, can you be this cool in that car? Maybe. We're not saying you can, but maybe you can. Brilliant. I, that's marketing, right? And that's effective. That tunes our minds. Like, we are immediately in. And there is no, like, if you listen to, the, I, I had the sound off, but if you listen to the sound, it's nonsense. Which is Matthew Kaiser's just kind of rambling about, you can't go in the past, but then you can if you know where to look. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means nothing. And then it's like Lincoln. And you're like, but that's how our culture has trained us. That's how our minds have been formed. Not what is good. Not what, of course, could bring glory to God. Think about this. That Lincoln is insanely expensive. Right? Buy a beater and give the money that you could have spent on the Lincoln to the missions. We have people that are, we are sending money to who work with the poorest of the poor. That's what they do actively. And we support them. How much more can we support them if that was our way of thinking? But our minds are not formed Christ-like. They're formed, how can I be this cool? How can I experience this moment? How can I have this? I, I was just deeply, I was deeply, I was deeply broken um, 
uh, the other, it was yesterday as I was talking with my uncle who's working with a church in Afghanistan. And I'm just like, man, it's insane the poverty that is out there. And my mind is thinking luxury, enjoyment. There are so many more important things. How can we train our minds to think like Christ? Kent Hughes has another great line um, that I thought was, was really, really insightful. The Christian mind demands conscious negation. A Christian mind is impossible without the discipline of saying no. One of the most important things, especially in our culture, where we are constantly told to say yes, yes to everything, yes to whatever it is that your heart desires, say yes to it. And if you can't say yes to it now, you get a credit card, and then you can say yes to it. The Christian, the Christian is, the, is the person in the culture who says no, because I'm not interested in those kinds of things. My mind is being shaped differently. I am heading actively toward Christ, and I'm doing everything that I can to know him and to love him and to love his people, to love the brothers and sisters, not just in this room, but our brothers and sisters across, across the world who are seeking to worship the same God. We have so much in connection with those people, and I think we probably rarely think of them, but they're there. The task of maturing in Christ is the task of ruling our minds so that our impulses might be Christ-like and our good works might shine before God. We wrap up, I'll give you a, a, a blast of verses here. It was so fascinating, if you just type in good works in Bible works or Bible gateway or whatever search engine you might use to, to look verses up, how often that shows up. We had a wonderful baptism last week. Mitch has been created. I'm picking on you. Sorry, man. I know you love it. Love the attention. Everyone look at Mitch. Make him turn red. <laughs> he is now created. He's been recreated. He's been changed. Now he is the workmanship of Jesus Christ. Every one of you who, who bears Christ, you are, the wor- you are created. You've been reformed, reformatted for a purpose. And that purpose is good works. And good works flow from a pure heart and a pure mind. In Titus 3, he says it four times. It shows up four times the same concept, the same thing in 1 Timothy and some other places where it talks good works, good works, good works. But Titus says this. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And this is attached in in the context of Hebrews, if you remember. Um, Some of you advanced Bible knowers. This is attached to the assembly of the saints. One of the reasons why we gather together is because as you're saying, I surrender all, you also have the responsibility of turning to your neighbor and saying, did you surrender all this week? How can we surrender all this coming week? We are made to be Christ-like and to have Christ-like impulses. I think of, uh, I think we need new, new conviction. I want new conviction. So let me self-disclose what I want. I want new conviction around an old story. It's a story that's told so often that you're, you're kind of going to be, some of you might just be tempted to tune out before we, 
even finish it, but I need new conviction around this story. The story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, and in Matthew 25 is such an important text because it's kind of a judgment text. It's the end of all things text. It's the, it's the Ecclesiastes text that we had talked about earlier. And he tells a story about a master who goes away and he leaves his vast wealth with three servants. One he receives, gives five million, another two million, and another one million. And he says, take care of what I have given you and I will be back. And the master goes. And the master's gone a long time. He's gone so long, in fact, that, that they begin to wonder, is he even coming back? And then all of a sudden, on a day they don't expect, he just he shows up. There he is. Your, your boss, the owner of your company, has shown up and he asks the question, all right, what'd you do? What'd you do with what I gave you? One says, I doubled it with five million. I took it and I doubled it and I was able to do well with it. The second was the same. I, I, I doubled it and I was able to do well with it. And the other one was like, man, I knew you were gonna come back and ask me questions like that and I knew that if I lost that money, if I lost it, you were gonna be hard and harsh with me and you'd fire me. And, and so I tell you what I did. I took what I gave you, what you gave me. I took that one million and I buried it in the safe in the backyard and I've got it out and here it is, cold, crisp, just like you gave it to me, one million dollars. You can't complain. And what did the master say? You are a lazy servant. You could have even stuck it in a bank and received it. You know, point two percent or whatever they give these days, interest, and giving me fifty dollars more and done something with it. But what did you did? Nothing. You just sat there on it. So he says to the others, take what he's got, give it to the one with five million. Jesus then says this concludes with this line: For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, even, what, even that one million that he gave that, that person, it, it will be ripped away from him and he'll be left with nothing. Because the story ends with this, and cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. Because judgment is serious business. And God has given every single one of you, and I don't know if it's a lot or if it's a little bit. I mean, there's a pretty big difference between a million and five million, right? Some of us have a lot and some of us have a little, and most of us are pretty average somewhere in the middle. God has given you something. God has given you at the very least a mind to be shaped after Christ to begin to pour into that. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to ask the question that you sang the words to just a few minutes ago, I surrender all. I give it all to you. And I want you to ask the question this week. Not, I'm hoping that most of you are not just dwelling on evil thoughts and most of you are not just doing evil deeds. Take it further than that. Go further than that. Begin to ask the question, how can I give God more? How can, I, how can I push myself just one step farther? If you do one more thing for Jesus than you did last week, and you do it another week, and another week, and another week, man, your good deeds are going to shine like the sun. So take one more step. Turn off the TV for one more hour. Read scripture. Read, spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you know all of these things. I know most of you. You know all of these things. Practice them. Practice them. So that on the day of judgment, our God will not look at us and say, you lazy servant. But he will look at us and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. 
Let's stand and worship our God.